second day of the Secretary of Materialism uh, conference for it's great to pull a full room. So it's a real pleasure for me to introduce Martin Hagland, who's currently between Cornell University and a junior fellowship in the Harvard Society of Fellows. Hagland is the author of Radical Atheism, Derrida on the Time of Life, published by Stanford last year, as well as a book in Swedish, Swedish called uh, Chronophobia, and numerous articles in English and in Swedish. Uh, currently, Hagland is preparing his dissertation for publication under the title Chronolibidinal Reading, Proust, Wolf, Nabokov. There, he will spell out the consequences of his deconstructive theory of time and desire in the domain of literary theory. Preparations are also underway for two volumes that will complete the Radical Atheism Trilogy. Um, first, a critique of the vitalist ontologies of eminence associated with Henri Bergson and Gilles Deleuze, to be followed by a book on Heidegger that Hagman tells us will articulate a systematic alternative to both philosophies of transcendence and of eminence. Since its recent publication, Radical Atheism has already been the subject of a symposium at Cornell, the focus of a special issue of the journal CR, the New Centennial Review, entitled Living On, uh, which should appear in print any day now, um, uh, and a review essay by Ernesto Leclos and forthcoming diacritics, and a forthcoming diacritics. Radical Atheism is a striking book whose argumentative success comes, at least in part, from its refusal to trade in the rhetorical evasiveness so familiar to deconstruction. Hagelin sees in Derrida's work the means to give exacting and logical accounts of time as negativity, the structure of the finite trace as the element of being as such, and the desire for living as a desire for living on, for survival. The most general stakes of radical atheism are therefore twofold. First, Martin pursues an unsparing critique of any attempt to associate Derrida or deconstruction with religion. For Hagelin, there is no such thing as a religious or ethical turn in deconstruction. Far from being a pious affirmation of a transcendent beyond that is immune from the contagion of temporal destruction, Hagelin's deconstruction is not only resolutely godless, but resolute in its insistence that God is but a name for the worst possibility, death. Second, Hagelin elaborates the consequences of this conception of radical atheism for an understanding of the politics of deconstruction, premised on the recognition that the Derridian theme of undecidability resulting from the temporal cont uh, contamination of any norm, law, or value does not entail an abstention from commitment or engagement, but rather forces decisions whose consequences can never be calculated in advance. There is, in fact, no prescriptive content to deconstruction. In Hagelin's view, deconstruction never retreats from its original ontological orientation toward description and explanation. In this, the implicit rel relevance of radical atheism's argument for the 21st century debates surrounding realism and philosophical materialism are clear. Recently, Hagelin has been making this relevance explicit by developing a theory of archi-materiality that spells out the co original co-implication of time and materiality. This argument is designed in part as a systematic alternative to the speculative materialism of Kant and Meissou, the scientific naturalism of Ray Brazier and the object-oriented philosophy of Graham Harmon, which we heard the fascinating articulation of yesterday. Uh, during this afternoon's talk, titled Radical Atheist Materialism, a Critique of Mayasu, uh, we'll be privileged to hear the first systematic account of this theory of archimateriality. So with that, please welcome Martin Hagen. Thank you, Aaron, for that uh, very generous introduction. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Nathan and Petar for organizing this event, um, the Mama Theory Institute for sponsoring it, and uh, all the participants for making it such an inspiring and challenging occasion. 
So there is a handout that I think everyone has that I will make reference to, but if no one is missing that, I will begin. The difficulty of distinguishing the genuine philosopher from the eloquent sophist is never more pressing than when someone comes forth and proposes a new paradigm for thinking. The uncertainty concerning the merit and depth of the discourse typically precipitates two types of responses, both aimed at settling the question of legitimacy once and for all. On the one hand, the enthusiasm of those who join the movement, convinced that they have found the genuine new philosopher. On the other hand, the cynicism of those who dismiss the emerging paradigm as a design to dazzle the young, convinced that the supposedly groundbreaking philosopher is a sophist in disguise. The work of Kentameasu seems destined to provoke these types of responses. Meyasu himself is adamant that his work goes to the heart of classical metaphysical questions in order to answer them anew, and his former teacher, Alain Badiou, even holds that, quote, Meyasu has opened a new path in the history of philosophy, unquote. Judging from the rapidly growing interest in Meyasu after the English translation of his first book, After Finitude, and the announcement of the movement of speculative realism in its wake, there are many who seem willing to subscribe to the truth of Badiou's statement. Conversely, the apparently fashionable character of Meyasu's philosophy cannot but provoke suspicion among the already established, especially since Meyasu himself situates himself polemically vis-à-vis -vis all forms of transcendental philosophy and phenomenology. Nevertheless, it would be a mistake to endorse either of these two attitudes to Meyasu's thinking. The considerable merit of his work is that it invites philosophical argumentation rather than reverence or dismissal. Hence, I will seek to confront the logic of Meyasu's arguments with the logic I articulate in my book, Radical Atheism. Striking parallels between after finitude and radical atheism have already been noted. In a recent essay, Aaron F. Hodges stages a confrontation between the two works in terms of the question of materialism, which is an instructive focal point for our respective trajectories. Both books criticize the prevalent turn to religion in the course of reactivating fundamental questions of contingency and necessity, time and space, life and death. Returning to these questions here, I will not only seek to critically assess Meyasu's work and press home the stakes of radical atheism, but also delineate the consequences of the debate for the notion of materialism. Now, Meyasu targets nothing less than the basic argument of Kant's transcendental philosophy, which holds that we cannot have knowledge of the absolute. I really have a problem with this microphone, right? Yeah, all right. Against all forms of dogmatic metaphysics, which lay claim to prove the existence of the absolute, Kant argues that there can be no cognition without the forms of time and space that undercut any possible knowledge of the absolute. The absolute would have to be exempt from time and space, whereas all we can know is given through time and space as forms of intuition. As is well known, however, Kant delimits the possibility of knowledge in order to, quote, make room for faith. 
by making it impossible to prove the existence of the absolute, Kant also makes it impossible to refute it, and thus rehabilitates the absolute as an object of faith rather than knowledge. In contrast, Meyasu seeks to formulate a notion of the absolute that does not entail a return to the metaphysical idea of a necessary being. He endorses Kant's critique of dogmatic metaphysics, but argues that we can develop a speculative thinking of the absolute that does not come to positing a necessary being. The absolute, for Meyasu, is rather the power of time. Time makes it impossible for any entity to be necessary, since the condition of temporality entails that every entity can be destroyed. And it is precisely this destructibility that Meyasu holds to be absolute. As he writes, only the time that harbors the capacity to destroy every determinate reality while obeying no determinate law, the time capable of destroying, without reason or law, both worlds and things can be thought as an absolute, unquote. Armed with this notion of the absolute, Meyasu takes contemporary philosophers to task for their concessions to religion. By renouncing knowledge of the absolute, thinkers of the holy other renounce the power to refute religion and gives the latter free reign as long as it restricts itself to the realm of faith rather than knowledge. As Meyasu puts it with an emphatic formulation, by forbidding reason any claim to the absolute, the end of metaphysics has taken the form of an exacerbated return of the religious, unquote. Although Meyasu rarely mentions him by name, Derrida is clearly one of the intended targets for his attack on the idea of a holy other beyond the grasp of reason. As I demonstrate in radical atheism, however, Derrida's thinking of alterity cannot be aligned with any religious conception of the absolute. For Derrida, alterity is indissociable from the condition of temporality that exposes every instance to destruction. Consequently, Derrida's notion of the absolutely or holy other does not refer to the positive infinity of the divine, but to the radical finitude of every other. Every finite other is absolutely other, not because it is absolutely in itself, but, on the contrary, because it can never overcome the alterity of time and never be in itself. Far from consolidating a religious instance that would be exempt from the destruction of time, Derrida's conception of absolute alterity spells out that the subjection to the violent passage of time is absolutely irreducible. There is thus a parallel between the conception of time proposed by Meyasu and Derrida, respectively. The crucial difference, however, is that Meyasu does not rule out the coming of a god that would have the power to restore what has been destroyed. Despite his critique of religion, Meyasu advocates a divinology according to which God is possible, not because it is possible that God may currently exist, but because it is possible that he may come to exist in the future. Meyasu's argument is that the absolute contingency of time, the fact that anything can happen, entails that the advent of the divine is possible. While this may seem to be Meyasu's weakest and most extravagant proposal, I will argue that it follows from a decisive problem in his theorization of time. 
For Meyasu, absolute time is a virtual power that only entails the possibility and not the necessity of destruction. Furthermore, the destructive effects of temporality that do take place can supposedly be reverted by the virtual power of contingency, which according to Meyasu even allows for the possible resurrection of the dead. I will show that these arguments are untenable since there can be no contingency without the succession of time, which entails irreversible destruction and rules out the possibility of resurrection a priori. My argument has two steps. First, I demonstrate that the conception of time as dependent on the structure of the trace, which I develop in radical atheism, provides a better model for thinking temporality and contingency than the one proposed by Meyasu. Derrida defines the structure of the trace as the becoming space of time and the becoming time of space. I demonstrate that this structure follows from the succession of time and that it entails what I call the archimateriality of time. Contrary to what Meyasu holds, time cannot be a virtual power to make anything happen since it is irreversible and dependent on a spatial material support that restricts its possibilities. Second, I confront Meyasu's divinology with the logic of radical atheism. Radical atheism targets an axiom shared by both religion and traditional atheism, namely that we desire the state of immortality. The radical atheist counterargument is not only that immortality is impossible, but also that it is not desirable in the first place. Through Meyasu's own examples, we will see that the purported desire for immortality in fact is motivated by a desire for mortal survival that precedes it and contradicts it from within. In clarifying the status of this desire for survival, I conclude by showing how it is crucial for radical atheist materialism. Meyasu's point of departure is the empirical phenomenon of what he calls archive fossils namely objects that are older than life on Earth and whose duration it is possible to measure. For example, an isotope whose rate of radioactive decay we know. Such archifossiles enable scientists to date the origin of the universe to approximately 13.5 billion years ago and the origin of life on Earth to 3.5 billion years ago. According to Meyasu, these ancestral statements are incompatible with a basic presupposition of transcendental philosophy, which holds that the world cannot be described apart from how it is given to a thinking and or living being. The unstressful statements of science describe a world in which nothing was given to a thinking or living being, since the physical conditions of the universe did not allow for the emergence of a life or consciousness to which the world could be given. The ensuing challenge to transcendental philosophy is not, Meyasu writes, the empirical problem of the birth of living organisms, but the ontological problem of the coming into being of givenness as such, unquote. Rather than being able to restrict time to a form of givenness for consciousness, we are confronted with what Meyasu calls an absolute time, quote, wherein consciousness as well as conscious time have themselves emerged in time, unquote. Meyasu is well aware that he could here be accused 
of conflating the empirical with the transcendental. Empirical bodies emerge and perish in time, but the same cannot be said of transcendental conditions. The transcendental subject is not an empirical body existing in time and space, but a set of conditions through which knowledge of bodies in time and space is possible. Thus, a scientific discourse about empirical objects or the empirical universe cannot have purchase on the transcendental subject since the latter provides the condition of possibility for scientific knowledge. Meathus' rejoinder to this objection is an ingenious philosophical move. He grants that the transcendental subject does not exist in the way an object exists, but insists that the notion of a transcendental subject nevertheless entails that it must take place, since it presupposes the existence of a physical body that limits the perspective on the world. The transcendental subject, as both Kant and Husserl maintain, is essentially finite, since it never has access to the world as a totality, but is dependent on receptivity, horizon, perceptual adumbration, and so on. It follows that although transcendental subjectivity is not reducible to an objectively existing body, it must be incarnated in a body in order to be what it is. As Mayasu puts it, that a transcendental subject has this or that body is an empirical matter, but that it has a body is a non-empirical condition of its taking place, unquote. Consequently, when scientific discourse temporalizes and spatializes the emergence of living bodies, it also temporalizes and spatializes the basic condition for the taking place of the transcendental. Thus, Meyasu argues that the problem of the ancestral cannot be fought from the transcendental viewpoint, since it concerns the space-time anterior to spatio-temporal forms of representation. Far from confirming the transcendental relation between thinking and being as primordial, the ancestral discloses, quote, a temporality within which this relation is just one event among others, inscribed in an order of succession in which it is merely a stage rather than an origin, unquote. Meyerson's argument has a significant affinity with the notion of the trace that I pursue in radical atheism, since Meyasu does not simply debunk transcendental philosophy with reference to an empiricist, positivist, or metaphysical discourse. Rather, Meyasu mobilizes the central insight of transcendental philosophy, namely the finitude of transcendental subjectivity, against itself. For my part, following Derrida, I seek to traverse the texts of transcendental philosophies of time in order to show that they presuppose the structure of the trace that contradicts them from within. By virtue of its own temporality, transcendental subjectivity is dependent on a material support whose necessity cannot be reduced to its own constitution. This is what I would analyze as the archimateriality that precedes the relation between thinking and being, just as it precedes the relation between the animate and the inanimate. For example, the non-living matter of Meyasu's archifossiles presupposes the architrace and archimateriality of time. If the events to which the archifossiles testify, e.g. the origin of the universe and the accretion of the earth, were not inscribed as a trace when they happened, nothing would remain of them and it would be impossible to date them. 
Meazu himself does not draw this conclusion, and he is strangely silent on the question of how ancestral time recorded itself. For Meazu, the important point is that mathematics can access the data of ancestral reality. But the mathematical calculations of ancestral time in turn depend on the material support of archifossiles, which presuppose the trace structure of time. Hence, while Meazu's point that time cannot be reduced to a transcendental form of intuition is well taken, it does not follow that there is no common denominator between ancestral time and phenomenological time. Succession is not only operative in the consciousness of a transcendental subject, but also in what Meazu calls absolute time, since the latter both precedes and exceeds the existence of thinking, living beings. The concept of succession is perhaps the most under-theorized notion in Meazu's ontology, and it is here that the decisive differences between our respective arguments begin to emerge. Meazu argues that the principle of non-contradiction must be, quote, an absolute ontological truth for the temporal becoming to be possible. If a contradictory entity existed, it could never become other than itself, since it would already contain its other within itself. Given that it is contradictory, it could never cease to be, but would rather continue to be even in not being. The existence of a contradictory entity would thus remove what Meazu calls the dimension of alterity that is required for becoming. This argument is correct as far as it goes, but it fails to consider that the same problem arises if we posit the existence of a non-contradictory entity. A non-contradictory entity would be indivisibly present in itself. Thus, it too would remove the dimension of alterity that is required for becoming. Contrary to what Meazu holds, the movement of becoming cannot consist in the movement from one discrete entity to another, so that, as he writes, things must be this, then other than this, they are, then they are not, unquote. Rather, for one moment to be succeeded by another, which is the minimal condition for any becoming whatsoever, it cannot first be present in itself and then be affected by its own disappearance. A self-present, indivisible moment could never even begin to give way to another moment, since what is indivisible cannot be altered. The succession of time requires not only that each moment be superseded by another moment, but also that this alteration be at work from the beginning. Even the most immediate moment must negate itself and pass away in its very event. If the moment did not negate itself, there would be no time, only a presence forever remaining the same. This argument, which I develop at length in Radical Atheism, does not entail that there is a contradictory entity that is able to contain its own non-being within itself. On the contrary, I argue that the constitution of time entails that there cannot be any entity, whether contradictory or non-contradictory, that contains itself within itself. The succession of time requires that nothing ever is in itself, but is always already subjected to the alteration and destruction that is involved in ceasing to be. It follows that an entity cannot be indivisible, 
but depends on the structure of the trace. The trace is not itself an ontological entity, but the logical structure that explains the becoming space of time and the becoming time of space. A compelling account of the trace therefore requires that we demonstrate the necessary co-implication of space and time. The classical distinction between space and time is the distinction between simultaneity and succession. The spatial can remain the same since the simultaneity of space allows one point to coexist with another. In contrast, the temporal can never remain the same since the succession of time entails that a now is immediately negated by another now. For the now to be succeeded by another now, it must negate itself as soon as it comes to be. By the same token, however, it is clear that time is impossible without space. Time is nothing but negation, so in order to be anything, it has to be spatialized. There is no flow of time that is independent of spatialization, since time has to be spatialized in order to flow in the first place. Thus, everything we say about time, that it is passing, flowing, in motion, and so on, is a spatial metaphor. This is not a failure of language to capture pure time, but follows from the originary becoming space of time. The very concept of duration presupposes that something remains across an interval of time, and only that which is spatial can remain. Inversely, without temporalization, it would be impossible for a point to remain the same as itself or to exist at the same time as another point. The simultaneity of space is itself a temporal notion. Accordingly, for one point to be simultaneous with another point, there must be an originary becoming time of space that relates them to one another. The structure of the trace as the co-implication of time and space is therefore the condition for everything that is temporal. Everything that is subjected to succession is subjected to the trace, whether it is alive or not. The problem of succession is directly relevant for the main argument in After Finitude, which seeks to establish the necessity of contingency. As Meas, who formulates his guiding thesis, Everything is possible, anything can happen, except something that is necessary, because it is the contingency of the entity that is necessary, not the entity, unquote. This notion of contingency presupposes succession, since there can be no contingency without the unpredictable passage from one moment to another. To establish the necessity of contingency, as Meiso seeks to do, is thus also to establish the necessity of succession. Meyasu himself, however, does not theorize the problem of succession, and this comes at a significant cost for his argument. According to Hodges, Meyasu's critique of the principle of sufficient reason is potentially damaging for my notion of radical destructibility, which holds that everything that comes into being must pass away. But in fact, I would argue that it's rather my notion of radical destructibility that allows us to locate an inconsistency in Meas's argument. And uh, here I want to quote in full the first 
quotation on the handout. So, to assert that everything must necessarily perish would be to assert a proposition that is still metaphysical. Granted, this thesis of the precariousness of everything would no longer claim that a determinate entity is necessary, but it would continue to maintain that a determinate situation is necessary, the destruction of this or that. But this is still to obey the injunction of the principle of reason, according to which there is a necessary reason why this is the case, the eventual destruction of X, rather than otherwise, the endless persistence of X. But we do not see by virtue of what there would be a reason necessitating the possibility of destruction as opposed to the possibility of persistence. The unequivocal relinquishment of the principle of reason requires us to insist that both the destruction and the perpetual preservation of a determinate entity must equally be able to occur for no reason. Contingency is such that anything might happen, even nothing at all, so that what is remains as it is. Under quotation. While emphasizing that a necessary entity is impossible, Meyasu maintains that it is possible for nothing to happen so that the entity remains as it is. But as soon as we take into account the intrinsic link between contingency and succession, we can see that the latter argument is untenable. If nothing happened and the entity remained as it is, there would be no succession. But by the same token, there would be no contingency. An entity to which nothing happens is inseparable from a necessary entity. In order to be subjected to succession, which is to say, in order to be contingent, the entity must begin to pass away as soon as it comes to be and can never remain as it is. Consequently, there is a reason that necessitates destruction, but it does not re-import re a metaphysical principle of reason. On the contrary, it only spells out what is implicit in the principle of unreason that may also cause the necessity of contingency. Contingency presupposes destruction, succession, and there is no succession without destruction. If the now were not destroyed in being succeeded by another now, the relation would not be one of succession, but of coexistence. Thus, to assert the necessity of contingency is to assert the necessity of destruction. Meyasu's response would presumably be that his notion of time does not depend on relentless succession, but designates what he calls a virtual power that may leave everything as it is or subject it to succession. To posit such a virtual power, however, is not to think the implications of time but to posit an instance that has power over time, since it may stop and start succession at will. In contrast, I argue that time is nothing in itself. It is nothing but the immediate self-negation of the now that is required for succession. Time cannot, therefore, be a virtual power, since it is nothing but negativity and does not have the power to be anything or do anything on its own. More precisely, according to my archimaterialist account, time cannot be anything or do anything without a spatialization 
that constrains the power of the virtual in making it dependent on material conditions. We can clarify the stakes of this argument by considering the example of the emergence of life, which for Meosu is a paradigmatic example of the virtual power of time. His way of formulating the problem, however, already reveals an anti-materialist bias. And here we move to quotation number two. The same argumentative strategies are reproduced time and again in philosophical polemics on the possibility of life emerging from inanimate matter. Since life manifestly supposes, at least at a certain degree of its evolution, the existence of a set of affective and perceptive contents, either one decides that matter already contains such subjectivity in some manner, in too weak a degree for it to be detected, or that these affections of the living being did not pre-exist in any way within matter, thus finding oneself constrained to admit their eruption ex nihilo from that matter, which seems to lead to the acceptance of an intervention transcending the power of nature. Either a continuism, a philosophy of immanence, which would have it that all matter is alive to some degree, or the belief in a transcendence exceeding the rational comprehension of natural processes. It is striking that a philosopher with Meyasu's considerable knowledge of science would present such an inadequate description of the actual debates about the emergence of life. A materialist account of the emergence of life is by no means obliged to hold that all matter is alive to some degree. On the contrary, such vitalism has been thoroughly debunked by Darwinism and its most prominent philosophical proponents. For example, what Daniel Dennett analyzes as Darwin's dangerous idea is precisely the account of how life evolved out of non-living matter and of how even the most advanced intentionality or sensibility originates in mindless repetition. Rather than vitalizing matter, Philosophical Darwinism devitalizes life. For Meazu, however, life as subjective existence is something so special and unique that it requires an explanation that is refractory to materialist analysis. In Dennett's language, Meazu thus refuses the cranes of philosophical and biological explanation in favor of the skyhook of a virtual power that would allow for the emergence of life ex nihilo. To be sure, Meazu tries to distinguish his notion of eruption ex nihilo from the theological notion of creation ex nihilo by maintaining that the former, that is to say his notion of eruption ex nihilo, does not invoke any transcendence that would exceed rational comprehension, but rather proceeds from the virtual power of contingency that Meazu seeks to formulate in rational terms. In both cases, however, there is the appeal to a power that is not limited by material constraints. Symptomatically, Meyasu holds that, quote, life furnished with sensibility emerges directly from a matter which in, within which one cannot, short of sheer fantasy, foresee the germs of this sensibility, unquote. As Meyasu should know, this is nonsense from a scientific point of view. Life furnished with sensibility does not emerge directly from inanimate matter, but evolves according to complex processes that are described in detail 
by evolutionary biology. If Meyasu here disregards the evidence of science, it is because he univocally privileges logical over material possibility. Contingency is for him the power to make anything happen at any time so that life furnished with sensibility can emerge without preceding material conditions that would make it possible. This idea of an eruption ex nihilo does not have any explanatory purchase on the temporality of evolution, however, since it eliminates time in favor of a punctual instant. Even if we limit the notion of eruption ex nihilo to a more modest claim, namely that the beginning of the evolutionary process that led to sentient life was a contingent event that could not have been foreseen or predicted, there is still no need for Meyasu's concept of contingency as an unlimited virtual power to explain this event. Consider, for example, Dennett's Darwinian argument concerning the origin of life, and this is quotation number three. We know, as a matter of logic, that there was at least one start that has us as its continuation, but there were probably many false starts that differed in no interesting way at all from the one that initiated the winning series. The title of Adam is, once again, a retrospective honor, and we make a fundamental mistake of reasoning if we ask, in virtue of what essential difference is this the beginning of life? There need be no difference at all between Adam and Badam, an Adam for Adam duplicate of Adam who just happened not to have founded anything of note. The beginning of life is here described as a contingent event, but notice that the contingency does not depend on a punctual event of eruption, but on what happens successively. There is no virtual power that can determine an event to be the origin of life. On the contrary, which event will have been the origin of life is an effect of the succession of time that can never be reduced to an instant. Consequently, there is no need for Meyasu's skyhook of eruption ex nihilo to explain the emergence of life. The emergence of life is certainly a contingent event, but this contingency cannot be equated with the power to make anything happen at any time. Rather, the emergence is dependent both on preceding material conditions that restrict what is possible and on succeeding events that determine whether it will have been the emergence of anything at all. Thus, I want to argue that the insights of Darwinism require the concept of time as survival rather than as virtual power. The concept of survival that I develop allows us to pursue the consequences of the archimateriality of time as well as the general co-implication of persistence and destruction. If something survives, it is never present in itself. It is already marked by the destruction of a past that is no longer, while persisting for a future that is not yet. In its most elementary form, this movement of survival does not hinge on the emergence of life, but is operative even in the non-living matter of ancestral time. For example, the isotope that has a rate of radioactive decay across billions of years is surviving 
since it remains and disintegrates over time, but it is not alive. Accordingly, there is an asymmetry between the animate and the inanimate in the archimateriality of the trace. As soon as there is life, there is death, so there can be no animation without the inanimate, but the inverse argument does not hold. If there were animation as soon as there is inanimate matter, we would be advocating a vitalist conception of the universe where life is the potential force of the teleological goal of existence. The conception of life that follows from the archimateriality of the trace is as far as one can get from such vitalism, however, since it accounts for the utter contingency and destructibility of life. What difference, then, is at stake in the advent of life? The radioactive isotope is indeed surviving, since it decays across billions of years, but it is indifferent to its own survival, since it is not alive. A living being, on the other hand, cannot be indifferent to its own survival. Survival is an unconditional condition for everything that is temporal, but only for a living being is the care for survival unconditional, since only a living being cares about maintaining itself across an interval of time. This distinction between matter and life that I propose is speculative, in a sense that I will specify below, but it is instructive to first consider it in terms of the scientific definition of life that follows from the second law of thermodynamics. As is well known, the second law holds that the entropy of any isolated system gradually increases with the effect that all complex macromolecular structures break down over time and lead to the eventual heat death of the universe. This process of inanimate matter, on my account, already requires spacing. On the one hand, the disintegration of matter answers to the originary becoming time of space. The simultaneity of space in itself could never allow for the successive stages of an entropic process and the concomitant destruction of material structures. Rather, for there to be successive destruction, the negativity of time must be intrinsic to the positive existence of spatial matter. On the other hand, the disintegration of matter answers to the originary becoming space of time. The succession of time could not even take place without material support, since it is nothing in itself and must be spatialized in order to be negative, that is, to negate anything at all. Consequently, we can see how the notion of archimateriality allows us to account for the minimal synthesis of time, namely the minimal recording of temporal passage, without recourse to any animating principle, consciousness, or soul. The very existence of matter subjected to entropy records the passage of time without any observer or intentional structure being there to apprehend it. The difference that emerges with the advent of life has nothing to do with a vital force that would be exempt from the material condition of entropy, but only with a form of organization that is able to temporarily defer its implacable effects. Accordingly, the most general scientific definition of life 
takes it to be a form of organization that counteracts the entropic movement toward disorder and destruction. By virtue of not being an isolated system, life can sustain itself by drawing on its environment and in so doing resist the fate of entropy. This movement of survival requires, on the one hand, an open system, since the life of a given entity must be able to take in new material and replenish itself to make up for the breakdown of its own macromolecular structures. At the same time, however, the movement of survival requires a certain closure of the system, since the life of a given entity must draw a boundary between itself and others in order to sustain its own life. It follows that the care for survival is inextricable from even the most elementary organization of life. Neither the openness to replenishment nor the closure of a boundary would have a function without the care to preserve a given entity from destruction. Such care for survival is not exclusive to humans or other animals, but is at work already in the mindless molecular machinery of replication. As Dennett points out, the machinery of replication necessarily engages a calculation of loss and gain where, quote, the cost of doing something is running the risk of doing it wrong or making a mistake. A copying error counts as an error here only because there is a cost to doing it wrong, termination of the reproductive line at worst, or a diminution, diminution in the capacity to replicate, unquote. This notion of cost that Dennett locates in the basic machinery of life can only be operative if it matters whether something is lost or maintained, which is to say that it can only be operative if there is a minimal care for, a minimal investment in, the fate of survival. The care in question is not necessarily, however, the exclusive property of organic life. As Dennett makes clear, replication was already at work in the precellular evolution of what he calls macros, namely macromolecular structures endowed with self-reproducing mechanism that evolved for almost a billion years before the emergence of living things. At the other end of evolution, there is today advanced research into the possibility of artificial life, where life is still defined in terms of self-organization and reproduction, but not necessarily in terms of the carbon base of organic life. The distinction between matter and life that I propose is not meant to settle these empirical questions of where to draw the line between the living and the non-living. Rather, it is meant to elucidate the philosophical stakes of drawing the line in the first place. It is thus a speculative distinction because it seeks to clarify a conceptual rather than empirical distinction between matter and life. This speculative distinction allows us to take into account the Darwinian explanation of how the living evolved out of the non-living while asserting a distinguishing characteristic of life that does not make any concessions to vitalism. The care for survival that on my account is coextensive with life does not have any power to finally transcend material constraints but is itself a contingent and destructible fact. Nevertheless, all meaning and all loss of meaning, all hope and all despair hinges on this contingent fact since, every, since without care everything would be a matter of indifference. 
The fact that every object of care, including care itself, can be extinguished does not make it meaningless or insignificant, but is, on the contrary, what makes it significant in the first place. It is because things can be extinguished, because they have not always been and will not always be, that anyone or anything cares about them. Thus, I argue that the care for survival is the condition for every mode of engagement with the world, all the way up to and including the supposedly most elevated ones. For example, all the virtues that traditionally are assumed to be based on religious faith, compassion, love, responsibility for the other, and so on, in fact presuppose the care for survival. In order to feel compassion or take responsibility for the other, I have to be invested in a being who is susceptible to suffering and who consequently is mortal. This does not mean that the care for survival is intrinsically good or necessarily in the service of life. On the contrary, the care for survival gives rise to every positive and every negative affective response. Without the care for survival, there would be no compassion and love, since one would not be invested in anything, but there would also be no resentment and hate, since one would not be threatened by anything. Consequently, the care for survival is not only the source of the desire to preserve life, but also the source of the desire to destroy life. Indeed, even the most suicidal desire to terminate all survival presupposes care for at least two reasons. First, if one did not care for survival, one would not experience any suffering that could motivate suicide, since one would not care about what has happened or is happening to oneself. Second, if one did not care for survival, one would not care to terminate all survival, since one would not care about what will happen to oneself. The only way to be truly indifferent to survival is to be dead, which is to say that it's impossible for a living being to be indifferent to survival. In Meiyasu, the problem of survival emerges most clearly in his divinology, where he transitions from a speculative exposition of the conditions for being in general to an engagement with questions of death and resurrection, which by definition only matter to a being that cares about its own survival. By examining this transition, I will seek to press home the stakes of my argument and its consequences for materialist thinking. Indeed, we will see how Meyasu's divinology allows us to assess both the ontological consequences of his attempt to separate the necessity of contingency from the necessity of destruction and the religious consequences of his conception of desire. The point of departure from Meyasu's divinology is what he calls the spectral dilemma, which arises in response to, quote, terrible deaths that one cannot accept. The victims of these deaths return as specters that haunt the living and preclude the achievement of an essential mourning that would, that would enable one to come to terms with what has happened. For Meyasu, the main obstacle to achieving such essential mourning is the fourth alternative between a religious position that affirms the existence of God and an atheist position that denies the existence of God. 
According to Meyasu, both of these positions are, quote, paths to despair when confronted with specters, unquote. Meyasu draws his conclusion by staging a dialogue between the two positions, recounting what he regards as the strongest responses to mourning by the religious apologist and the atheist, respectively. For the religious apologist, there must be the, quote, hope for something for the dead also, or else life is vain. This something is another life, another chance to live, to live something other than that death which was theirs, unquote. The atheist, in turn, responds that this promise of justice is, in fact, a threat of the worst injustice, since, quote, it would be done under the auspices of a god who had himself allowed the worst acts to be committed, who has let men, women, and children die in the worst circumstances when he could have saved them without any difficulty whatsoever, unquote. This is, according to Meyasu, the spectral dilemma, either to despair of another life for the dead or to despair of a god who has let such deaths take place. While Meyasu subscribes to neither of these positions, he retains an essential premise from each of them. On the one hand, Meyasu retains the religious premise that the hope for justice requires the hope for a life beyond death. On the other hand, Meyasu retains the atheist premise that the existence of God is an obstacle to the existence of justice, since the existence of God would mean that he has allowed terrible deaths. The key to resolving the spectral dilemma is thus, for Meyasu, to find a third option that would combine the possible resurrection of the dead, which is the religious condition of the resolution, and the inexistence of God, which is the atheistic condition of the resolution. This third option hinges on what Meyasu calls divine inexistence, which has two meanings. On the one hand, divine inexistence means that there is no God, no metaphysical principle or creator of the world. On the other hand, divine inexistence means that there is, quote, the possibility of a God still to come, become innocent of the disasters of the world, and in which one might anticipate the power to accord to specters something other than their death. Accordingly, it is possible to hope for a God who does not yet exist and hence is innocent of the atrocities of history, but who may come to exist in the future and resurrect the dead. In proposing this resolution to the spectral dilemma, Meyasu appeals to his argument that the laws of nature can change at any moment for no reason whatsoever. I would here not examine the details of this argument, which involves lengthy treatment of Hume's problem of causal necessity. Rather, my point is that even if we grant Meyasu's argument about the contingency of the laws of nature, it cannot support his divinological thesis. As we have seen, the latter holds that a transformation of the laws of nature may allow a god to emerge and resurrect the dead. The contingency of the laws of nature would thus, would thus allow for the possibility of reversing the destructive effects of time. In fact, however, Meyasu's own account of contingency shows why such redemption of the past is not even possible in principle. As he argues in Afterfinitude, 
even if a set of natural laws were abolished, the succession of time would not be abolished, since the latter is the condition of possibility for any change or disappearance of natural laws. It follows from this argument, even though Meyasu does not acknowledge it, that contingency cannot redeem the destructive effects of time. Given that contingency presupposes succession, and that succession hinges on the destructive passage from one moment to another, there is only ever contingency at the price of destruction. The destruction in question is irreversible and hence irredeemable, since what distinguishes temporal succession from spatial change is precisely that the former is irreversible. My radical atheist argument, however, is not limited to an ontological refutation of the possibility of redeeming temporal being. It is also directed at the assumption that such redemption is desirable. We can thereby approach the motivation from Meyasu's divinology and read it against itself from within. Recall that the spectral dilemma is essentially a problem of mourning since it arises because one is unable to accept a terrible death. Now, if one did not care that a mortal being live on, one would have no trouble letting go and accepting death. The spectral dilemma that Meiasu locates in the struggle for justice thus presupposes <coughs> care for survival. If one did not care for the survival of someone or something, there would be nothing that compelled one to fight for the memory of the past or for a better future. Indeed, without the care for survival, one would never be haunted by the fate of the dead, since one would not care about anything that has happened or anything that may happen. The constitutive care for survival allows us to read the so-called desire for immortality against itself. The desire to live on after death is not a desire for immortality, since to live on is to survive as a temporal being. The desire for survival cannot aim at transcending time, since temporality is intrinsic to the state of being that is desired. There is thus an internal contradiction in the purported desire for immortality. If one did not care for mortal life, one would not fear death and desire to live on. But for the same reason, the prospect of immortality cannot even hypothetically appease the fear of death or satisfy the desire to live on. Rather than redeeming death, the state of immortality would bring about death, since it would put an end to mortal life. The distinction between survival and immortality is directly relevant from Meyasu's proposed solution to the spectral dilemma according to which a god can emerge and resurrect the victims of terrible deaths. Meyasu does not make clear whether the resurrection of the dead would entail immortality in the strict sense, or whether it would allow the dead to simply live on as mortals. <coughs> but even if we grant the latter alternative, we can see that it offers no solution to the spectral dilemma of mourning terrible deaths. If the dead are resurrected as they were at the time of death, they will come back as victims of severe trauma and still face the problem of how to mourn what happened to them. 
Alternatively, if the idea is to resurrect the dead without the memory of their terrible death, the problem of mourning is still not resolved, but only cancelled out. The resurrected would not have to mourn that particular death, but in living on, they could be subject of another terrible death, in which case a new inexistent god would have to emerge and erase the memory of what happened. These speculations may seem absurd, but they reveal that Meyasu's solution to the spectral dilemma would require the advent of immortality. <coughs> if the world continues to be populated by mortal beings after the emergence of the inexistent god, then nothing can prevent terrible deaths from occurring again, and the new god will soon be guilty of having allowed them to happen. The only way to avoid this problem would be to install a state of immortality that would not allow any terrible deaths to take place. As we have seen, however, the state of immortality cannot answer to the survival that is cared for and that motivates the struggle against the injustice of terrible deaths. The mortality of life is not only an unavoidable necessity, but also the reason why we care about anyone's life at all. It follows that the state of immortality cannot satisfy the hope that is at the root of the spectral dilemma, namely the hope that singular mortal beings will be given another chance to live. Far from providing another chance to live, the state of immortality would terminate life. Both the hope for another life and the despair over terrible deaths are thus dictated by a desire for mortal survival, which entails that the problem of mourning cannot even in principle be resolved. Meso's mistake is to treat death and spectrality as something that can be removed without removing life itself. In contrast, the radical atheist argument is that spectrality is an indispensable feature of life in general. When I live on from one moment to another, I'm already becoming a specter for myself, haunted by who I was and who I will become. Of course, the loss that is inherent in this experience of survival is made much more palpable in the actual mourning of someone's death. But it is operative on a minimal level in everything I experience, since it is inextricable from the mortal being that I am. If I survived wholly intact, I would not be surviving, I would be reposing in absolute presence. Thus, in living on as a mortal being, there is always an experience of irrevocable loss, since the movement of survival necessarily entails the eradication of what does not survive. The loss in question is not necessarily tragic. Depending on the content and the situation, one may want to welcome or resist embrace or lament the loss of the past. The point, however, is that one always has to reckon with it. Whatever one does, one is haunted by a past that is repressed or commemorated, and indeed often repressed precisely by being commemorated, or vice versa. That is why there is always a process of mourning at work, as Derrida maintains in Spectres of Marx, and why one must always respond to the past by burying the dead, either in the sense of forgetting or remembering. The comparison with Derrida is instructive here, 
since he also treats the interconnection between spectrality and mourning, but in a radically different way than may assume. For Derrida, the spectrality of mourning is not an affliction that ought to be redeemed by divine intervention, but a constitutive double bind. On the one hand, mourning is an act of fidelity, since it stems from the attachment to a mortal other and from the desire to hold on to this mortal other. On the other hand, mourning is an act of infidelity, since one can only mourn if one has decided to live on without the other and thus leave him or her or it behind. This betrayal is certainly unavoidable. The only alternative to surviving the other would be to kill oneself and thereby kill the memory of the other as well. But the violence of living on is nonetheless real. To live on, I cannot be absolutely faithful to the other, since I have to mobilize my ability to do without the other and in the process kill my previous attachment to a greater or lesser degree. Thus, the survival of life necessarily engenders ghosts, since it must demarcate itself against a past that cannot be comprehended and a future that cannot be anticipated. For Meyasu, however, the spectrality of mourning is not a structural feature of life and can potentially be overcome by a miraculous event of redemption. This is a profoundly depoliticizing move since it removes attention from the ways in which the problem of mourning is mediated historically in favor of a general resolution of the problem by divine intervention. The deconstructive notion of an irreducible spectrality is, on the contrary, a notion that politicizes the question of mourning all the way down. Such politicization does not consist in deriving a prescription for mourning from the ontological analysis. If a prescription were possible to derive from the ontological analysis, the question of mourning would once again be depoliticized, since there would be a criterion for addressing it that is exempt from political contestation and struggle. The hyperpolitical move of deconstruction is, on the contrary, to refute any possible prescription on the ontological level in order to account for the irreducible necessity of politics as a historical and material praxis. Precisely because the work of mourning cannot operate without exclusion and cannot justify these exclusions a priori, it will always be necessary to evaluate their effects on a historical and material level. Accordingly, Derrida's ontological analysis of being does not seek to resolve the problem of mourning, but to account for why one would always have to reckon with violence and discrimination. For Meyasu, however, the desired state of being is a community that would prevail beyond violence. Following a pious logic, he ends his essay on the spectral dilemma with the hope for a god that would be, quote, desirable, lovable, worthy of imitation, and who would make us participate in, quote, a becalmed community of living, of dead, and of reborn, unquote. The radical atheist argument is not simply that such a peaceful state of being is impossible to actualize, as if it were a desirable, albeit unattainable end. Rather, the logic of radical atheism challenges the very idea that it is desirable to overcome violence <coughs> and spectrality. A completely reconciled life, 
which would not be haunted by any ghosts, would be nothing but complete death, since it would eliminate every trace of survival. In pursuing this argument, radical atheism does not seek to repudiate, but to re-describe the hope that animates the struggle against the injustice of terrible deaths. The struggle for justice and the hope for another life have never been driven by a desire to transcend temporal finitude, but by a desire for mortal survival. Schematically then, and now I'm coming to a conclusion, radical atheist materialism can be said to have two major consequences. First, it establishes the archimateriality of time in distinction from all idealist or speculative attempts to privilege temporality over spatiality. The constitutive negativity of time immediately requires a spatial material support that retains the past for the future. The virtual possibilities of temporality are therefore always already restricted by the very constitution of time, since the material support necessarily places conditions on what is possible. Contrary to what Meyasu holds, the contingency of time cannot be a pure virtuality that has the power to make anything happen. The spatiality of material support is the condition for there to be temporality, and hence the possibility of unpredictable events through the negation of the present. But it also closes off certain possibilities in favor of others. Second, the necessity of discrimination and material support on the ontological level allows for a radical politicization on the historical level. Given that the contingency of time cannot be a pure virtuality, but is itself dependent on material support, there can be no line of flight from the exigencies of the actual world and its particular demands. Furthermore, the conception of desire that informs radical atheism is in fact indispensable for a materialist analysis of social struggle. If we argue that social struggles are not in fact concerned with the religious end they profess, but rather with material injustice, that is, if we politicize <coughs> social struggles, we presuppose the radical atheist conception of desire according to which the struggle for justice is not concerned with transcending the world, but rather with survival. Thus, rather than a priori dismissing struggles that are fought in the name of religious ideals as deluded, the logic of radical atheism allows us to see that these struggles too are a matter of survival and thus essentially material in their aims. Whether a given struggle for survival should be supported or resisted is a different question and one that only can be settled through an actual engagement with the world rather than through an analysis of its ontological condition. Everything thus remains to be done, and what should be done cannot be settled on the basis of radical atheism. Rather, the logic of radical atheism seeks to articulate why everything remains to be done by refuting the untenable hope of redemption and recalling us to the material base of time, desire, and politics. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, let me first say that the whole argument is a conceptual argument that tries to draw out the consequences that follow from the concept of succession. So, and that would mean that any discourse that then, for its own intelligibility, depends on invoking succession would have to reckon with the consequences that I draw just from what is implicit in the concept of succession. And that's why it's not, if I understood the first part of your question, it's the idea that is there something actual in space that is then negated by time, and that's how we get the idea of time. Is that, is that so? One way of considering what you're saying is that since time is nothing but negativity, since it requires spatial support or material support in order to be anything at all, yeah. what you need is something in actuality negated in order to arrive at the concept of succession. But the way, the way of posting it that way, though, would not be to pursue, because the basic conceptual argument is there's a co-implication, a reciprocal determination of time and space that logically precedes that type of problem. That is to say, like, if you, if you think through that the, there's no time without succession, and then we think through the minimal concept of succession, which is the fact that the now cannot be destroyed after it has been succeeded, but must be destroyed in its very event, that's when we arrive at the perplexing problem that haunts all of the history of philosophy, that time is nothing. This is also why time has been declared to be non-existent. So it's because when you start thinking it through, it is nothing in itself. And hence, everything we're going to say or think about time is going to depend on spatialization. And what I'm saying is that that's not an accident. It's not a distortion of language of the essence of time, but it testifies to the philosophical challenge of thinking something seemingly so elementary as succession. Modality all the way down without the substance, which would be 
what is affected. Mm. And uh, perhaps you elaborate on the response that I gave before, which give me some persuasive answers to that question. I think it's something to think about because uh, listening to your talk today, I couldn't help but think of Ray Brassier's work, you know, mm. who is the specter here uh, for the conference, but uh, because he too emphasizes negativity, time is negativity, and says, and basically for him it's the only ontological relation that he recognizes is negativity. And he's trying to undo any sort of concept of synthesis uh, in favor of sort of pure negativity. And I, I note that tendency in your thought too sometimes, because especially in the second half of your talk, you talk about the co-implication of persistence and negation, that something persists as its possibility to be negated. But you don't have a, a speculative or conceptual account of emergence. And when you do deal with emergence, you invoke debt, and you, you do return to this empirical framework. And you say, and I, I'm sympathetic, you're like it's the succession that determines what will have been important that it, that it emerged. But if time is pure negativity, and you also call it a constitutive negativity, which could be oxymoronic unless you're a negative. Like, so how does, what, where, where do these constitutive components come for? Where is the positivity if space is an empty category, and you don't have a category of substance? Yeah, the difference between space and substance is very important because that's what determines two different conceptions of persistence. That is to say, what I'm saying is that the necessity of destruction follows from the negativity of time, but that also calls for the necessity of persistence through space, something that can remain. However, that persistence is not the persistence of a substance because if it was, then it in turn could never be negated. You wouldn't have a becoming time of space. So to pursue the co-implication, the, the very idea of spacing, that which remains, that which persists, must in turn be temporalized. So that's how does something emerge? Then you say how it persists. How does it emerge? As like in the empirical universe, is that a, right? How does where is novelty in here? Where is the emergence of something new, a new entity? Well, I mean, the, possi the possibility of novelty here has to do with the intrinsic negation of what is. That is to say, that something never is what it is in itself, and that's what allows for unpredictability. That's what allows for novelty, like on a strictly conceptual minimal level. But then if we want to talk about more concrete questions that have to do with like the emergence of life in the universe, like obviously I'm going to go to a discourse that works with these questions in a way that I don't work with them. All I'm pointing out is that for that discourse itself to be intelligible, it needs something like an account of spacing. That's why I say it needs the conception of time as survival as a necessary but not sufficient condition to um, function, and what I'm calling attention to and trying to draw the implications of that. Mm -hmm. So, but the question of novelty is, has been much on my mind now since, since I'm engaged in a critique of Bergson and the laws. Right. And, yeah, exactly. and what I'm arguing, one of the central arguments there is precisely that you can't have unpredictability, you can't have novelty mm -hmm. without this intrinsic negation that is time that opens the interval that allows anything to happen, that allows anything to be changed. But if you take away the negativity, the negation from that, your accounts of novelty and transformation are all going to collapse at one conceptual juncture or another, and that's what I'm tracking. But you criticize that, precisely that element of Mayus' thought, because you're like, it's not, a it's not a punctual instance that accounts for Adam. It's that you know, we have all these false atoms, and it's what happens after Adam. But it seems that you still need, in, as you just metaphorized before, it's this gap that is open. You still need this like, punctual... Yeah. Like, but that's not, that's not a virtual power. It's, it's, not, virtual it's power. not a punctual eruption. Right. It is just the negativity of time that, is, that allows you then to, instead of having like a determinate 
matter and then you need some creative force to create newness, right. you know, you have negativity intrinsic to matter that opens the interval, that is the possibility for all deadening habit as well as every sort of creative newness. So thereby trying to displace the dualism that is always inherent in, in vitalism even when it claims to be a monism. This is the classic one version of the classic apori of time that arises, and um, the model I'm trying to work out is like is neither going for the discrete, neither for the continuous. And some of the versions of that is done in Husserl, but it becomes why I'm really interested in Bergson now is because he's trying to solve this problem by going to continuity, uh, and in taking issue with that, I can. Just briefly delineate that, I think, will allow me to, to just answer the, the conceptual question that you're asking. That is to say, Burton is saying, uh, he was also saying, like everyone else, there's no time without succession, there's no time without before and after. However, these cannot be discrete instances that succeed one another. Instead, the now is always already passing. For it to be passing, it must already be passing. So in a sense, he seems to be saying that what I'm saying, that the now, since it cannot be discrete, it's immediately passing away, but for Bergson, and this is the thing for any continuity paradigm, that passing away is not a negation. It just means that it's immediately continuous with the past. So that's why he's going to say that time synthesizes itself as duration. It's preserved automatically. Um, and, this, and, and thereby there's no loss, there's no negation. However, in doing that and claiming to think pure time, he's in fact thinking pure space, because only the spatial remains. Everything he says is completely spatial. So as soon as he loses negation, he loses thinking about time. Um, uh, now, what I'm saying, that very moment where, where, where Bergson and Deleuze, Deleuze does this in the second synthesis, when they go, when they, when they recognize what I would call the immediate self-negation of the now, they immediately recuperate it with the ontological past, with pure continuity. That's the very moment I'm saying, no, that means that time is nothing in itself, that it immediately requires to, something exterior to it, that is to say space. That is how I locate the co-implication. So, and that's why spacing neither goes, it doesn't posit anything discrete, it doesn't posit anything continuous. Um, and from the perspective of traditional philosophical logic that proceeds from something that is in itself, it's going to seem paradoxical. But that paradox 
it's not enough to refute my argument by saying like, well, you start from a paradoxical contradiction, you're saying that something negates itself, so what is there itself to negate, since that's exactly the logic of identity that I'm trying to take issue with. The crucial move is rather that how you move from that paradox and how you can produce an account that would not succumb either to the paradoxes of the discrete or the paradoxes of the continuous. And that's what I'm trying to work out by soi, uh, engaging with the discrete, tradi traditions that posit the discrete, soi, with traditions that posit the continuous, and showing the paradoxes and untenabilities they end up in because they refuse to think through that time is nothing in itself, is nothing but the immediate self-negation of the now, and that that requires space, but space that itself is not substance or pure persistence, but itself requires temporalization. Yeah, I don't know. That, that so then in your answer to the question, it seems like um, you want to argue for the coemplication of space and time and give an account of that. But that coemplication is first premised upon you separating those two and holding them apart. Yeah. So the time, as you put it, can inscribe itself in space or spatially. And so that coemplication is not space-time. You call it spacing, yeah. which is okay. But first it seems like even if that term is supposed to synthesize the two, it seems like you actually do for your account to operate. You have to pull the two apart in order for time to inscribe itself, as you put it, in space. Yeah, for negativity to have any force, obviously it can't be the same thing as the positivity of space. And in the order of philosophical reasoning, I want to take this very classical distinction between time and space, that is to say, time is succession, space is simultaneity, Time is that which can never remain as the same as itself. Space is that which can remain. And because if I'm going to show their conceptual co-implication, I first have to treat the concepts as if they worked in themselves and then show how they, in order to be what they are, require the other. But they, it cannot be a simply collapse of the one into the other, obviously. Um, so, but I see that as, as just an effect of reasoning with philosophical concepts, like I have to grant them uh, what they're supposed to be in order to show their complication. We can't construct a new concept that wouldn't have to hold apart. No, I mean, this is part of like why Derrida, Sosia, and Gramme is a very important starting point for me. That's what he's trying to show in a sort of contorted way, but nevertheless with force, is that like there is, can be no other concept of time than succession. And this is, um, and therefore the classical problems are not as, for example, Burson is going to say, well, it rests on a confusion, we can have a different conception of time that's going to solve this. No, it's always going to be haunted by this problem of succession, and the way to think it through is to think spacing. Or, you know, the, that, or death already, which is not a neutral term for describing the end of life or something like that. 
And I wonder if it doesn't start with the most basic move, which is to say that deconstruction refuses to accept that anything can be in itself, and that everything is always othered by its being in time. And I wonder what actually the target of that is. It just goes back to a question that came up yesterday in a few different ways. Because I take two really banal examples. Say any little event in time, like you're playing tennis, you get a forehand, you know, making a bit of a good demonstration. You know, a forehand is a forehand, it's something that's been described as such, you know, it has a, there's an in itselfness of a forehand that distinguishes it from other strokes in tennis, yep. uh, and it has a moment in time, but that moment is sort of not a punctual moment in that it brings together various things before and after the ball through the backstroke, etc. But none of that, none of that compromises in any sense our ability to describe the forehand as, as a forehand. The fact that it's in time about is on the contrary the condition, and I'm sure you agree with this, mm. for our being able to describe yep. this. But in doing so, it doesn't undercut its being a forehand, in, I would say in any way. Or to take a second example, a, a basic number, like number three, and this goes back to the question Nathan asked yesterday about you know, internal objects like a triangle, so it's important. In other words, objects that don't obviously succeed. Now three, as a concept, certainly does succeed. In fact, it's integral to its definition. Ordinal succession gives us the tool we need to think this number three. But in doing so, it doesn't in any way, again, compromise it Yeah, I think there was at least four <laughs> questions. All of them very good. Uh, so um, I'll I'll start with I, I think I'll start with the the idea of the that it doesn't compromise the in itselfness that succession doesn't compromise it. Now, in a lot of ways in which we talk about things and we want to talk about things, in a lot of discursive registers in which we make sense of the world, obviously, it's not relevant to bring in the fact that what we call the in itself itself succeeds and thereby has a certain compromise and so on. And I'm not calling for that to, to you know, start stumbling over my forehand when I play tennis just because I realize that like, it never really happens in itself and can I then hit the ball and like, these things. Uh, so, however, as I was saying in response to the initial question, the product is like, the one postulate is that like, is, is, is there a discourse that 
in order to function need succession, then these are the consequences I want to draw from it. You know? And like, specifically, I start from the problem of thinking time, and I say like, time can be nothing but succession. I'm trying to draw out the consequences of that, and then trace those consequences in relation to other questions that depend on the conception of time and trying to rethink a number of fundamental questions with regard to that. And obviously, when, those, when the terms associated with that speculative exposition, such as contamination or corruption and so on, are reiterated in certain contexts and with regard to certain questions, it's always possible that they will have an unjustified prescriptive force or lend themselves to other understandings, even in my own argument, obviously. But it seems to me that that argument can't be made generally. It can't be said, um, I, I give, try to give philosophical, conceptual reasons for why it's adequate to talk about this in terms of contamination or corruption and so on. And one can either contest that saying, well, this is problematic in relation to the philosophical subject you're treating for these reasons, and I would have that argument. Or one can say, when you stray into this particular question, it lends itself to these resonances and thereby lessens your ability to think the problem at hand, in which case, again, that's a specific debate uh, to be had. So this, again, lends itself to... Then when you talk about the, the mathematical numbers, it's, again, I mean, if we... If... Mathematics, from certain perspectives, the question of succession is not relevant to grasping those questions. Obviously, my discourse is not going to be relevant. I'm the, the presupposition is always that it's in relation to questions that whatever I'm engaging with cannot avoid invoking succession. Then it holds. If you have discourses or formal identities and so on where you can perfectly well make sense of the problem you're treating without invoking succession, what I'm saying doesn't have the same purchase. So, uh, finally, the last example that you give about like the difference between calling the end of life death or uh, or eternal life. I mean, or emptiness. Or emptiness. Yeah, and obviously there, I'm very invested in not granting those things, not for prescriptive political reasons, but for philosophical reasons. That is to say, like, I think that when precisely decided the way I want to articulate it proceeds from the irreducibility of the care for survival that is seen as reducible in those discourses that would say, like, well, we could get rid of it and still have something that would be positive, whether it's eternal life or emptiness or extinction, that, that would be good. And I'm trying to elucidate the reasons why that blinds us to uh, the conditions that we're reckoning with and the stakes of the problem of our problems of desire and so on. So there, I, I definitely there's, it's it's not a neutral decision at all. But like my redescription of those notions of eternal life and emptiness or peace as absolute death and absolute violence and so on is totally integral to my argument. Uh, and that debate can be had. But that's, so that certainly has a prescriptive force, but that's a philosophical rather than political or ethical. So did I... Maybe I missed one of your questions, too. I wonder what they asked for. Uh, 
My experience. But not only yours, but everyone else, because it would be kind of superior criticism. I can have a different uh, experience. Based on your experience, you are right. And based on my experience, uh, I am right. For example, if you said there is no reversal of time, in my opinion, there is. In my experience, in my memory, there is a reversal. Uh, then, for example, you should allow people because they are mortal. If they are not mortal, you maybe would like them, but not as much. <laughs> so I would suppose uh, you're a very, very good person, one of the best person I ever met, but uh, based on your uh, own account about yourself, you will be on some more things. So, I mean, uh, and then, uh, I mean uh, about time. Uh, from time after time, uh, So um, I, I'll, 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 I'll try to answer your first three questions at least. Uh, and, uh, no, and first of all, I, I think it can be important to be pompous in philosophy. So I, <laughs> I have no, no problems with that. And, um, and, and I appreciated all the points that 
you were raising. Um, however, I think that one of the fundamental experiences of philosophy is not to is to think about one's experience, but also think again about one's experience, so that what seemed familiar and made sense to you starts to make less sense. And, and, and in view of that, I think that um, uh, the things you were talking about in the beginning of we can reverse time in our memory, of course, because we can go back and we can remember something, but that depends on there being a trace of it, and that's not the same thing as going back to the same no. time. You could happen, for example, that uh, one chunk of space, for example, maybe I'm not completely precise, but maybe 30 uh, light years uh, cube will uh, turn uh, in reverse within maybe the next 10 years. And this will go also for decades. And then start to uh, go uh, forward again. I mean, those things have been happening, and this on every level, or atomic level and so on. Uh, I mean, uh, this is what also alters our experience. In that case, we start to uh, appreciate much more uh, the law of cause and effect, even against our will. Okay, thank you. I will think about that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, uh, no, I'm st- I mean, yeah. maybe a, a related yeah. question, um, which we've talked about before, but mm-hmm. I just pose it to you here. About the relationship between um, mortality and finitude yeah. uh, in your work. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really similar point. Yeah. Basically, the, in what way do you need a concept of mortality rather than a concept of finitude? So in what sense is the way that you speak about finitude in the case of a living being, yeah. how does that entail an account of the death of an organic body or a mortal body? Why speak about mortality, I suppose, at all rather than finitude? Um, so, for example, what seems to me the essential to your account is an account of temporal finitude, yeah. so that any instance has to pass away, etc. But we can conceive of a living being if we think that mortality is contingent rather than a necessary condition. But if we think that finitude, if we grant you that finitude is a necessary, not a contingent condition, we can still conceive of a being which is subjected to finitude 
insofar as it's subjected to the passage of time in the erasure of instance, persisting in that finite condition indefinitely. And so my question is whether that sort of persistence really constitutes a mortal condition or simply finite subjection to finitude, but not necessarily to mortality. And if not, um, if your account doesn't necessarily depend upon the perishing of an actual organic mortal body, then why do you need the concept of mortality in your work? And what do you gain from the point? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, that's an excellent question. First of all, on the on the relation between persistence and destruction, when you're talking about a finite being persisting indefinitely, that's still, since I'm thinking the communication of persistence and destruction, that is to say, the notion of persistence presupposes an interval of time. For something to persist, it must persist for a time. And thereby, the, ne the negativity of time, the negation of the now, is already not just a possibility, but a necessity to persistence. You know, the spatial trace, of course, it's just it's possible for it to be erased, but it's not an immediate necessity. But that's why persistent destruction is intrinsic to persistence conceptually. There. Now, as I said in the talk, that doesn't give you mortality itself. That just gives you finitude. But it does explain why even the persistence infinitude of being involves loss. Now, when we move from finitude to mortality, that has all to do with the movement from something sur surviving indifferently to something that cares about whether it survives or not. That is when it becomes a matter of life and death, and that's when the register of mortality comes in. So as soon as you have uh, care about whether you survive or not, you have the question of life and death. And then we can go on to describe that when I, as a being that actually cares about my own survival, when I formally also persist and in persisting and being destroyed and losing things, those, all of those losses can be described as a relation to death. Not because, so death is not reserved for the end of the organic being, but they, they become a question of death rather than just loss and destruction when there's actually care involved. So that's how... So could we say, I mean, would you agree then that finitude is an ontological dimension yeah. in your thought? Mortality is a merely existential yeah. It's only a, an existential dimension as a sort of possible horizon. Yeah. Um, but it's not then involved in your ontology, although finitude is. I mean, there are two different registers to, uh, to the argument. That is to say, like, uh, but as I said, not only every object of care, but care itself is a destructible fact that can be indifferent, persistence and destruction. Just, And I'm not talking about empirically when is the advent of life or what is living and what is non-living all I'm saying is that wherever you draw the line there's going to be a line and I'm trying to talk about the states of that difference um, and I can't have a different ontological condition on both sides so that's why there's an asymmetry I said there's an asymmetry between the animate and the inanimate in the constitution of the trace that is to say there's no animation before the inanimate but the inverse doesn't hold because then you would have life all the way down and life from the beginning. But mortality, as I said, I mean, it would apply to the second level when there's care. Then you can talk about the relation to loss in terms of the states of life and death because of care. 
Um, so that's how the distinction is supposed to work. And that also the entire spice why that is not reserved exclusively for the physical death of an organic being, but why my relation to death can be operated in every moment, precisely because in my very persistence there is destruction and that is already me becoming a specter for myself, me having a relation to loss. But that, yes, if you will, that would be the existential rather than the strictly ontological. So in the strictly ontological there is not mortality because there's not care. Okay, well, we can come back to all of these things and, and more uh, this evening. So, let's thank you.